Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Perpetua, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me here, Jason. So, so many of us are type A's, and we love the phrase from you, let's get type A about being type A. So can you talk about that? Of course. So essentially, if you're type A, you want to be great at being type A, meaning you want to leverage the strengths of being one, not let that cause you to be burnout or be unhappy or lead a non-purposeful life, which is what type A's want to do. We want to essentially keep having the energy, keep wanting to have those meaningful connections and leave a legacy in this world. So if we're going to burn out, and that's basically self-defeating. So essentially, like type A's, we basically do not want generics. We want to get clear. We want accountable. Um, we want accountability. We don't whine. So that's essentially like how I package it for my type A clients. And in turn, because we speak the same language, we get on quick and we get there quick as well. So own it, love it. <laughs> I think that's part of it. And we mentioned working with clients and we all have our own patterns and I'm curious, what are some common patterns you work to quote unquote unwire with your clients? So some common patterns will be, I cannot have boundaries because um, I don't have permission to have boundaries or to have boundaries just makes me very pugnacious. So, you know, it's like, you almost feel like if you said no, or you kept some time or energy to yourself, it will become extremely ugly or you're extremely rude. Another one is I cannot rest or even go for a run. I'll sleep when I'm dead. So essentially burnout is a bad honor or it feels like your destiny is inevitable. Otherwise, I feel bad for thriving or for having any form of privilege that brought me to where I am today. Or I need to obsess over every single minutiae versus so basically I need to look at every nitty gritty part of my life, my childhood, my journey to today. Otherwise, I'm not okay. So essentially, you're just going to obsess and overanalyze, which leads to analysis paralysis. And what are some of the blocks? Mm -hmm. You mentioned the big, you have the big three blocks. So the big three blocks that I find in most of my clients essentially are panic attacks, um, anxiety. Generally for my high functioning clients, it's basically in the form of high functioning anxiety and toxic relationships. So these are things that people tolerate until they reach breaking point, which is not cool at all. Because like I'm reminded of this quote that I read in this book that this fiction book that I used to love. And it's it says that as humans, we are great at adapting, but we are crap at evolving. So when it comes to these three things, we are really great at adapting to worse and worse conditions. Can you talk about high functioning anxiety? I think it's so interesting. You you hear terms like like someone's a functioning alcoholic, but high functioning anxiety is a new one and I think many can relate to. Can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. So most of us think of anxiety as somebody who is completely paralyzed by fear. Their head's shattering and they can't go out, they can't do their work, they cannot function, they cannot have relationships and all their relationships are currently dysfunctional now because of anxiety. They We have this image of them with their windows all closed, curtains all blacked out, hiding under the duvet and chopping down the fingernails. And while that can be the image of some people with anxiety, people with high-functioning anxiety actually look like they have it together. So they're going to work, they're holding on relationships, they're probably getting great performance at work and getting 
great bonuses. They are being promoted all the time and things were great. But have you heard of the, you do know what a Loch Ness Monster is? Of course, the Loch Ness Monster, very scary. Yeah, so basically like you think about the lock, right? The lake in Scotland. And these people, they basically look like this lake that is very placid. But underneath that lake, there are loads of Loch Ness Monsters covered <laughs> under the surface. So basically, inside and outside do not match up. And like, well, that's quite normal for some of us not to match up in some areas or when things happen in life. Yeah, that happens. But for these people, there's an extremely big chasm. And the more they see this chasm, the worse they, the worse they feel about themselves, which leads this to essentially become a really big rabbit hole or vicious cycle. Huh. So how do you uncover all this with clients? I've always been fascinated by getting to the why and, and how coaches, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists get there quickly. So are there certain questions you always yeah. ask that, that, that get to the core of someone's motivations, aspirations, obstacles, etc. Definitely. I mean, the questions have been things I've been refining over the last so many years over loads of reflection and practice. And so one of them would be why now? So what's the catalyst that brings you here today? Why is it that after adapting for so long, you are actually wanting to make a change and you could have chosen not to show up for this call? Why are you still showing up for this call? Because a lot of people, they might fill out the form and they just disappear. They don't click the confirm button, and whereas this person has. So clearly, there's something that's brought them here today. So in my work, we always talk about this thing called the hashtag never again flag in your head. So every time, <laughs> like the old patterns, you remember this moment, your never again moment. And then other questions I would be like, you know, what, what bothers you the most right now? What do you want to control of? What's your burning questions? What's your biggest desire? and what's your perfect day and also other questions like what have you tried so far that has been the most helpful and the least helpful so that we can understand them and of course other questions that were asked in terms of motivations would be who else can you do it for so for some people it's about impacting the people in their lives so you know like if i don't do this my partner is going to you know, get worse or she's going to feel really really scared or he's going to feel like he cannot help it my children are watching my one each and every move and my kids are getting anxious themselves and i don't want my kids to be that way or also let's say they have no kids then another thing that i would say is well, are there other people in your life that you influence or you have impact on or how can you be the champion your younger self never had so you're hitting on a lot there and for me, listening to you, the theme of control seems to be reoccurring. And look, so many type A's, including myself, you love control, you thrive on control, you want control, and control makes you in some ways good at what you do. But is part of being in control, knowing when not to be in control? Absolutely. So you have to be in control of what you cannot control. As in, as in, as I'm saying, no, sorry, put it this way. You have to be in control of letting go of what you cannot control. So one way would be, questions I ask my clients would be, you can run your trigger or your anxiety through this filter of questions like, is this solvable? Is this controllable? Directly controllable? Like for instance, can I control oh, like um, wall hunger? famine? Can I control what's going on in some other country? Because sometimes when people are really anxious and they are quite empathetic as well, they tend to pick up all this stuff that they're watching 
and they start to feel like it's a burden in their shoulders and they feel bad and paralyzed. So when it comes to things like that, you cannot control what's going on in another country or sometimes even in your neighbor's house. So you know, it's about learning what you want to draw that line, which equals to your boundaries. And also the third question would be, is this actually relevant to me now? So for instance, like when you're anxious, you tend to want to preempt everything because you think that worrying helps you to solve problems. So like a person who is anxious could start worrying about what if my taps burst one day. And then they start obsessively searching about all the symptoms of your leaky tap and having a whole repository of plumbers and everything else. And actually that's not relevant to you right now. So you could have a one plumber, one plumber's telephone number, and that's all you need. So that's what we mean by creating that boundary between what's controllable and what's not controllable. And of course, this is also not to pretend that, or you try to mantra something away, because we all have heard of, say some mantra, say I'm calm, things are going to be great. But when your brain doesn't believe that, or when you're just ignoring your, you're ignoring how you're feeling, or what we call like a thought suppression, it actually comes back with a vengeance as it grows bigger and bigger. So what you want to do is acknowledge what's going on for you. Like you're worried, you're starting to worry about famine or war in another country. And thank your brain for actually having this worry because your brain is just trying to protect you or help you or do something like that. So, and you can just visualize filing this worry away rather than pretending it doesn't exist because acknowledging it actually diminishes it. Interesting. And otherwise, I, I love that concept of thought suppression. If you try to suppress it, it just blows up bigger. It, 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 it's very Buddhist, if you will. It's acknowledging the thought. Here it is. Yeah. It's not a good yeah. thought. It's a bad yeah. thought, but I'm acknowledging right. it. And mm. I'm going to try to move on or mm-hmm. understand the maybe even understand the why behind the thought yeah or basically understanding the nature of mind so we go back to oriental philosophy here and that's something that most of us didn't learn in school so you know i'm raised in singapore i'm ethnically chinese but nobody ever taught me what the mind is right we just think for the brain nobody ever taught me how to take care of my mind and so one of these big things i learned later on in life was that thoughts come from nowhere so sometimes you just have to let them disappear. So I think it was like um, Shunriya Suzuki who said, keep the front door and your back door of your mind open. Let your thoughts come and go. Just don't serve them tea. And some of my clients would laugh because they say, what? I invite my thoughts in and I serve them feast for days. I love that. The front door and the back door. I love that. So yeah. but that, that's kind of, that, that's huge. Cause if we're, we're going to circle back to anxiety, the I think for type A's, high achievers, anxiety does, for many, if I had to you know generalize, does it all comes back to control and and letting go, and it's look, and I speak from experience. So I think what makes so many people great is their ability to say, you know what, here's the goal. I'm going to do whatever I can. I, 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 I get it done. I work my butt off. I, uh, you put a goal there. I'm going to run through every door. I'm going to do whatever I can to make it happen. And sometimes when things aren't going your way, it's extraordinarily frustrating and you obsess over it. And yeah. then there's this balance of when do I let go? versus push through and i i think that's an anxiety driver for many people so it's like what makes you great also can drive anxiety does that make sense definitely yeah control can be a really great thing can also be a really bad thing like if you want to control things you cannot control like like famine then it's going to 
really bad. But of course, when it comes to something more personal, when it, uh, a personal goal, a professional goal, I totally get it as well. You know, like as a businesswoman, I understand as a psychologist, I also get it as a personal thing. And so in cases like that, it's always important to always have reviews to see whether what's really going well, what's not going well. And sometimes part of the problem is as we are building, working towards a certain goal, we second guess ourselves. We're like, does this technique work? Does this technique not work? And we dilute it by throwing in a zillion other tactic that everybody else prescribes that may not fit what's going on for us. So as we're second guessing ourselves, we incinerate our energy. And then as we start throwing out these tactics, we also dilute our focus. So again, it steals our energy. And then of course, this way, it's harder to actually even reach like a few steps towards our goal. So that's a really important thing. Like part of this control is to maybe give yourself, say, two weeks to implement a few steps without second guessing it, without diluting that. And then you're telling yourself, okay, if there's other things coming up, I'm just going to put that into a list. And two weeks later, I'm going to review that. Now, it doesn't have to be two weeks, it could be one week. But basically, you have to give yourself that time to try that out without second guessing too much. So saying that, my God, I heard this probably when I was a kid, but it, it resonated with me very much was the saying, you don't want to spend your life climbing a ladder and then reach the top and discover it's the wrong ladder. And how do you, that, that means a lot of different things to different people as we talk about in the context of goals, like how do you, when you're working with someone, how do you go about determining what that means for that individual? Are they on the right ladder? What does success mean? Is it the right goal? Because I, I you can often, I'm sure you can help people work through their blocks and help achieve what they're looking to achieve. But is that, how do you determine is ultimately what that, is that the right thing for that person? Of course, um, for this really importantly is that the client has to define what that means. And I also always ask like, is this something that somebody prescribed to you that you believe that you have to answer to somebody or fulfill somebody else's dreams that are not yours? So that comes to this whole thing, like if there was nothing stopping you, no obligations, no practical, emotional or financial, whatever obstacles, what would you really do? And that actually gives me a really good glimpse to that person. And then of course, you know, I always tell people that you define what something means. So for people like to say things, have it all sounds completely crazy, but I don't think it's crazy because have it all really means different things to different people. So then it was up to you to understand and say, what do you want? So for instance, what are your values in life? What are your goals and what are your priorities? If something is your value and something is your goal, then your calendar has to align with that. I love that. If, That's yeah. a great exercise. I've done that as an entrepreneur and as a CEO. Uh, one of my mentors one time had me go through the exercise of Look at your calendar. How are you spending time? And does your time allocation match up to your priorities, our priorities? And I went, I was like halfway through the exercise. I was like, oh my God, I get it. Like I didn't need to do any more work. It was just so clear. And it's just a great exercise in life and in work and anything. How are you spending your time? 
Yeah, and some people want to maximize, like some people want to maximize the goal, maximize the earnings, maximize the money. Some people have um, followed this principle called satisfying, where they just want enough. And again, they define what the enough is. Some people want this balance between different spheres of their life. So we are all in different places in our lives and come from different backgrounds. So again, we have to look very closely. And most of my clients who come to me are not not deluded. They're not asking for the moon. They're actually very realistic, but they are still ambitious. So essentially, like some of them, they are in in a process of essentially rebuilding their lives. Because, for instance, if they're living a toxic relationship, that can be a big thing, right? And some of them are in the process of mastering their life, and others are in the process of finessing their lives. So they come to me in three different phases. And all people who come to me, they tend to be very realistic. And I think that you know that when they have a good balance between realism and you know, and, and realism and ambition, or even having like this hope or optimism for their future which this doesn't have to do with professional goals it could be to do with their personal goals or their relationships then you know that everything is actually achievable so so many of us get in our own way myself included everyone does it Uh, what are some of something you've mentioned previously is the, the invisible ways that people stunt their growth so what are some of those invisible ways there are plenty of invisible ways in which people stunt their growth. Like for instance, okay, so they judge themselves for not living some way or for not doing something. So for instance, like there's words like juice fast, digital detox, silent retreats, right? And yes, they could be good for some people. Social media could be good, could be bad, right? Judgment could be good, could be bad. But sometimes we just take on these prescriptions that we read or because it becomes trendy and we just take it on and just blunder right into it or we judge ourselves for not doing that so by doing that we stunt our own growth because we should actually be very clear and discerning on how we can take on a prescription in our life on what to add or what to subtract and also another way that we stun our own growth is to judge ourselves for having certain kind of wiring or motivation. So for instance, like I have ADHD, a lot of my clients come to me, we identify as being fast paced. So we don't say ADHD, some of us do, but essentially as somebody who's fast paced and type A, it's quite hard to find your same tribe. <laughs> and it's quite hard to feel accepted growing up because you're just this weird one who seems to get things fast but you get bored very easily. And so you don't mean to be disruptive or you don't mean to be unfocused, but it's just the way you are. And or like um, something I always write about in Mind Body Green would be introversion. And like um, these days, because of Susan Kane, we are a lot more aware of what it's like to be an introvert and for introverts to have strengths. But even then, like extroverts have always been known as you know the standard, the benchmark that you want to be. So when people judge themselves for being some, for not being something and they try to shoehorn themselves with something else, it is ultimately very miserable. You're going to be incinerating energy and you're not going to be able to get where you want to be because you're doing it in a different way. So for instance, like networking. So people say, oh, they could start with social anxiety or they could just not have the skills to network. And if you're an introvert, you want to network like introvert. If you're an extrovert, you want to network like extrovert. Do not try networking like the other party. What I think of is self-awareness. Yeah. So much of the process is being self-aware. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. This is a trigger. This isn't a trigger. It's, it's really getting to know yourself and being okay with yourself. 
accepting yourself. Yeah. So something you've also I'm like, you're just so prolific on my buddy green. So I'm like, I feel like there's like such a huge list of topics and we don't have a lot of time for those listening. You have to check out all of Perpetua's article. Like she's just so prolific. And I'm like, oh my God, there's so much we want to get through. I could talk to you for six hours. We don't have six hours. So I'm going to, I'm going to go quickly. Something sure. else you've said, which I love master your psychological capital. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So we all know about capital, like financial capital, and governments always talk about human capital. We know about social capital, which is the people your relationship you have, and how that can actually impede you or open your doors for you. Then we also know about cultural capital, right? But then there's also this thing called so, um, psychological capital, which is fundamentally who you are. So let me give you an example, okay? Because we know life changes, and right now, you know, we are in the midst of COVID and the financial recession and everything else. So, so overnight, people can gain or lose fortunes, right? Those are drastic, but you know, economics and money is something embedded into our lives, so we understand that. So in Singapore, where I'm from and where I'm living right now, there's this phenomenon where you have, say, ex invest investment bankers driving taxis, and when you sit in the taxi, so this has been happening since I was a kid, okay? So when I sit in someone's taxi and then they'll tell me, oh, I used to have this glitzy life, blah, 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 and I never recovered ever since the financial crash happened, and I've just been feeling very, very sad, and that's why maybe 20 years. So it made me wonder as a kid, how does someone with a glitzy past and so much potential suddenly go down that rabbit hole and get mired in the quicksand of hopelessness? And then how does someone else who may be in the same position have so such untold resilience or how do you see somebody who's gone through the most abject of abuse since childhood and torture and everything else just build themselves up so for me like things in the environment will change but what is your stability where's your bedrock within yourself and what is your agility your ability to adapt to different situations because you are so deeply um, you know, rooted in who you are, even though you don't know that you're deeply rooted, but you have the self-awareness and you have the strengths. So that is psychological capital, knowing who you are, mastering your strengths, and using that to send off your rough edges. So you know, when we talk about strength, basically not about saying uh, about being very cocky and arrogant and saying that, you know what, why it this way and therefore the whole world needs to cut off to me and this is the perfect way. It's actually having the humility to being able to acknowledge that, yeah, this is something I'm not so good at and this is something I could learn from. And But when you do it from a place of strength rather than deficiency, it's a lot easier to send off these rough edges. So you thrive in the world and you basically help other people support your relationships to grow as well. Like, wow, I, I think of resilience and I, I, I'm thinking about, so look, life happens, tragedy happens, adversity happens. From your vantage point, from what you've seen with clients, yeah. what are the qualities that people have who are able to overcome these, you know, tragedy obstacles? and those who aren't able to, like, how do people get through it? Is, is there something that these people share? Yes, actually, from what I've seen and from what I've also learned in the field of post-traumatic growth, the one thing that makes or breaks a person is the way we process the event. So if we're able to make meaning out of it, this is not to say, hey, I'm grateful for all the lessons and bring it on. This is not that at all. You're not looking for punishment, but rather that, hey, you know what, there's life 
this is life, the ups and downs, and during this down, I'm choosing to understand this. I'm choosing to make some meaning out of this and file this away as part of my life and take whatever lessons and strengths to move on. And yes, rebuilding is going to be hard. Transitions are always a lot harder than just adapting to a lower and lower and lower standard. But these people will do it. They will under they will create some sense of coherence rather than to sometimes talk about it, but most of the time just repress it. Because you can talk and talk until the cows come home, right? You can overanalyze and that may not even create any difference or healing unless you actually start to face that and essentially that's no longer your demon or what I call my clients, you know, make your demons work for you. I love that, make your demons work for you. So for those who are listening who aren't experiencing tragedy right now, but they just want to be better, they just want to optimize on a daily basis, what are some tips for those who just want to be better every day? What should we all be doing? So are we talking about tragedy or just everybody? Just every day after the, uh, every day for, for just a person out there who's not dealing with tragedy, who's just going about their way and for the most part doing okay, a lot going on in the world, but they're doing okay, but they just want to be better. They just want to be better. So if you want to really be better, it's about knowing who you are and actually make doing something about it. So you know, knowing who you are isn't just about taking some personality test and obsessing and using that as a reason to justify away why you should be a victim. Okay, that's not cool. But of course, it also, on the other flip side, is also to be able to appreciate and acknowledge that there are structural issues that lead some of us to be stuck in certain situations. So rather than just blame yourself, sometimes the cards can be stacked against you for now. And to get out of it can be difficult, but it's not impossible. So that's one thing, you know, like to be able to know yourself and do something about it. And of course, to always actively apply into in terms of growth. So so when it comes to growth, it's not just about just rushing and reading, speak reading 300 books a year. We read about people saying, oh, this is like the Kid Notes versions of books. You need to read like 300 or 500 books a year. And if you really love reading, I mean, I'm a bit of a geek, so I love to read. So that comes very easily to me. But if you ask me to watch a video, I'm like, oh, go away, send me the transcripts. <laughs> okay, so so this, what I'm trying to say is essentially, you don't have to read like 500 books to be better in terms of your growth. It's about reading maybe even that five books and applying it really well, reflecting and curating works for you and removing what doesn't work for you and actually just doing the work and of course you know it's also to give yourself time to replenish and rejuvenate yourself so it's not just about just rushing and charging forward it's not just about i will sleep when i'm dead or burn out my destiny so common right and it's about giving ourselves the time to rest so there's this author called uh, alex sutron kim he wrote this book called rest and i really love that because he said that when we rest the default mode network in our brain gets more active. So that's the creative part and it allows us to find solutions. So when that happens, what the things that are concepts that are, tend to be very divergent, that's when we actually integrate them together from something, a creative solution. So that's great. And he also wrote that Darwin and Dickens only work about four hours a day. And while I know that Darwin and Dickens had people laying out every single thing for them, ironing their newspaper, you know, I don't know if they had toothpaste then, but you know, if a toothbrush and toothpaste, I imagine somebody would actually be spreading the squeezing the toothpaste for them so i i totally acknowledge that okay but this shows us that it's not just about the quantity it's about giving ourselves the time to replenish ourselves as well 
So I'm going to switch gears and come back to something you mentioned earlier, toxic relationships. It's a big one. And one, how do you define a toxic relationship? And how do we know we're in one? And how do we get out of one? That's a big question, but... Okay, so what question shall we start with then? I mean, like, you've just asked me quite a few different ones. So what is, how do you define a toxic relationship? So a toxic relationship is one that's unhealthy for you, where there's some form of abuse. So abuse isn't just about having bruises and cuts and wounds. A lot of abuses are a lot more, are too sophisticated for that, or they have no inclination towards inflicting physical violence. So we're talking about different kinds of abuse, like emotional abuse, gaslighting, comes from gaslighting, paranoia, jealousy, control, financial abuse, where they take your money away or they try to basically have reins over how much you spend. And for instance, if you've entered a relationship where the arrangement is that you stay at home, you take out a household and kids, then there's cases of financial, a lot of cases of financial abuse that's covered in this book um, called Healing for Financial Abuse by Shannon Thomas, who's based in the States. Um, And she talks about how, you know, like these families could be really well off in the surface. The guy could vote and big houses, but the wife is sleeping on a mattress on the floor. And she has to come up with her own money from her own pocket because she cannot feed her children or just basically drastic stuff like that. So that's financial abuse. And then we also have things like stalking. So, you know, like this person basically monitors and keep tabs over every single thing that you own or your digital stuff. And not only that, they use anything and misconstrue that and twist that as a way to put you under the thumb and for you to walk on the eggshell, walk on eggshells. They may also stalk you physically in real life because you know what, I'm just trying to check whether you're cheating on me. Or you know what, I am your partner, I have every right to do that. Or I have a history of you know people hurting me, therefore I have the right to do that. So all these things come together and the question then isn't just about is this person a narcissist or a psychopath or as some people tell me, you know what, he's not full-blown or she's not full-blown. So those are some extreme examples and I think we'd all agree, absolutely, signs of a toxic relationship. Are there more subtle examples that aren't so overt whether that are potentially signs of a a toxic relationship or a relationship that's unhealthy? So a sign would be generally how you feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time. You're second guessing yourself and they're telling you things like, you know what, don't be too sensitive. So for instance, okay, so essentially there'll be a power asymmetry and one rule for you, one rule for me. So a lot of people think that victims in toxic relationships don't have don't assert themselves but actually a lot of them do so but when you assert yourself like you call out bad behavior or rude behavior or disrespectful behavior they will tell you you're too sensitive and they may even say things like i'm more experienced i'm older i'm smarter than you you have to listen to me and slowly they erode you so it starts off a very tiny stuff that on the surface when you look at them individually they just seem so petty so we could think of them as microaggressions but when you put them all together, it's just like, what the hell? You know, or they will tell you things like you're stupid and they erode your sense of trust and confidence in yourself. And then at the same time, they always position themselves as the savior who is smarter, wiser, and you have to follow them. So as your sense of self erodes and 
you have to think of it this way, right? Like when you don't go into a relationship thinking that, hey, I'm here to lose myself. Okay, I know some people do, but most of us, we don't go into a relationship hoping to lose ourselves. Most of us go in with some sense of us. And yeah, we are in different stages of development in our life and maturity, but we don't want to lose ourselves. But when this person, so, but, so you go into a relationship and this person comes off with this, comes on with this mask of being really great. You love them, you fall in love with them. And so they are the last person you expect to hurt you. So any bad behavior that they start to show in small little doses, because they're testing the waters, you will tend to dismiss away as, you know what, there's a reason for that. Or you know what, maybe I was crazy, maybe I was sensitive. And as they say such things, they start to erode your standards and your boundaries, because they have to do it systematically to see how much you're willing to take, right? And then over time, then you really lose yourself. Interesting. So you mentioned narcissists early and you, you were, you've just been so prolific on that subject. And what is it? Why is the topic of narcissism so popular <laughs> right now? Yeah. Well, things take time to have critical mass. Narcissists have always been there since time immemorial. I mean, like the, the genes that code that, that code for narcissism, uh, and psychopathy are actually there within the population because that helps populations to actually survive as well through times of changes. We need some people who are quite ruthless and cold-blooded and entitled in order to conquer new land. So it's always been there. But right now there's traction, there's volume. So media, social media, they give people a voice, right? So right now you don't have to go to the library to research through dusty piles of books in order to know what's going on if you're worried you have the internet so it's quicker for people to know what's going on and it's also quicker for people to say something and there's now the time for it to like it's grown in a way that there's traction and so there are people rallying behind it and of course there are people who totally leverage that and the people who use that as part of pop culture kind of like when people say oh, i'm so ocd but they're actually not ocd when ocd really is a clinical problem <laughs> yeah so people also start hand, like like pushing the word narcissism around you know willy-nilly so because of that it's also gained popularity like selfie taking i was gonna say is social media driving narcissism selfies likes yeah, our obsession with being popular online yep. like is that what's driving it that could be one of that but you know like because selfies are now part of normal human behavior i mean who really take a selfie right very few people don't take a selfie these days so it's not necessarily that just because you take a selfie or you're on social media you're bad because i think many people have read quite a few bits of research that there's different personality types driving people posting on social media. So it's not just about narcissism or entitlement. But hey, then again, I post on social media, maybe you no, know I'm biased and I will go on record and say that I'm biased to say that not taking not everybody who takes selfies are narcissistic because what's real narcissism essentially is a sense of abject entitlement, knowing that you can hurt other people and knowing that you can play other people's feelings. So there are many different types of narcissists from covert to sexual to conversational. Can you like briefly walk us through the different types? And also I'm curious in your opinion, which is the most dangerous type of narcissist? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I'll just walk you through the most common ones. So the overt one is the one that we 
think that with that one that we're most familiar with and the one that we think is associated with narcissism in our heads. So, you know, like the person who is very grandiose, full of braggadocio, the person who is very smooth and charming, dominating the conversation and actually very happy to do that. In fact, if you talk to them, they will actually tell you, this is my step one, two, three of how I dominate a conversation. They will talk over you and they will bring every single topic back to them. You could even experiment with the most ridiculous stuff, okay? And they will make it about them. So these are overt narcissists. They are always tooting their own horn very overtly and they cannot be happy to see somebody else shine. So they have to wrest the spotlight away from somebody else. Then we've got the, um, the COVID. It's totally the opposite. So the COVID tends to be what we think of as the more insecure person. So they use this sense of victimhood in order to to like to draw you in. And while you know, like I'll keep saying, bad things will happen in life. That is part of the cycle of life, right? So how you see someone who is a COVID narcissist is that they tend to actually revel in the attention they get from the suffering and the victimhood. So essentially, it's like it's not just bad things happen, it's about how they are a deteriorating train wreck. <laughs> addicted to the drama. And it's always a race to the bottom in terms of the suffering. So your, your orbit's always, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, every single thing, right? And this person's like, I'm suffering more than you. So what's the narcissist trap that's the hardest to spot and that we just keep falling for over and over again. So are we talking about the narcissist type or? The trap, like what do we fall, like, look, narcissism is just part of our culture right now. They're everywhere and I think we all have a little bit of narcissism in us. And what do we fall for? What are the pitfalls that, that we should be aware of? So, the main pitfall is how they get too close too quickly. So I know that some friendships, some relationships can come together quickly because there's chemistry, but there's always respect. So when somebody says, hey, you know what, like you're moving too quickly, I need some space, they can respect the space. And like we all, for the best of us, we forget. So sometimes we accidentally intrude upon that boundary that someone set. And when that someone calls us out, we're actually sorry for that genuinely. But narcissist is not. A narcissist actually thrives on impinging upon your boundaries. Interesting. And seeing how they can actually get you to lower your boundaries more and more. And so that is that happens during what we call the love bomb phase. So this narcissist doesn't necessarily have to be your lover. It could be your friend, but they just want to spend so much time with you. They bombard you with affection and attention and all sorts of great accolades, you know, like, oh, you're so amazing. And sometimes it sounds very vapid and hollow. Like, why am I amazing? I mean, it's not like you're fishing for compliments, but these things just sound like something that's just blanket that you, they could potentially just throw to anybody. And then they will also say things like, no one's understand, understood me so well before. And again, you could say that with somebody with, with whom you have a lot of similarities, but these people might just like totally use very superficial similarities or just one or two and totally play that up. So it's to create a sense of intimacy and more importantly, without breathing space. So when you don't have breathing space, then you don't have to think and you don't have time to consult with your own wisdom. And then that's when the isolation begins. So they try to triangulate you away from the other people in your lives so that they will be that one source. So then they might say that, oh, I don't like blah, blah, blah person. They seem to be bad for you. Or they could do it in a more 
a more covert, you know, like insidious way, like whispering to you when you're half asleep or things like that. That's creepy. That's creepy. Really, really creepy. Okay? Or when you are, for instance, you, when you're drinking and you're feeling a bit tipsy, that's when you're a bit more suggestible. And they'll tell you things like that. Even though on the surface, out loud, they'll say, oh, this person is cool. But they will tell you when you're suggestible or vulnerable all the things that they can do to isolate you. And also when it comes to a lover, the isolation could also be um, geographical. So, you know, they start to do this whole, like play up this whole, this earth against the world kind of thing. And like, I'm like this, that's just to say like, I'm a victim, kind of, they don't say it out loud, but you know, this happened to me. Oh, like the world was so hard and all this stuff. Let's move away. Let's start a new life somewhere else. When you're isolated from your family and your friends, you, and, these people start to gaslight you. They screw with your sense of reality. So you you stop having this compass on what's right and what's wrong. And they replace themselves as the barometer of reality. Well, that's when you get totally isolated from your own intuition and your own wisdom. And that's when wow. everything's going to hell. So what's the biggest mistake we make when dealing with the narcissist? So the biggest mistake that we make is to actually think that we want to keep them accountable. So a narcissist will flip back and forth and they'll, so they will say things like, oh, I'm, when they are really scared or sometimes they just do it to pepper it in as a form of contrition or looking like they are contrite to take a box because they know that's normal human behavior. They will say, I'm sorry, I promise I'm going to change. And then they're not going to change at all. Or any change has to be piecemeal or transient. And you're going to, so not only is it transient, they will actually regress to worse levels just to punish you. And every change that they make, you have to pay very dearly for that. So every time you go, but you said this, you promised this, and you know I was really sad and blah, 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 and you promised that you won't do X, Y, Z again. They will just say that I can't make promises like that or essentially but you have to stay with me because it stayed so long with me already so essentially keeping them accountable is that is what gets you sucked back in over and over again wow so we're gonna we're gonna close on a high note we're pivot away from narcissists so a lot higher yes yeah, yeah, so we we're, yeah. we're, we're gonna close on a high note so something you've talked about are vacations and i think in covid we're all ready for okay. vacations again and you say that vacations you like the idea of making vacations proper vacations and not merely escapes. Can you elaborate on that? I think it's very interesting. Absolutely. So we think that a vacation is going to solve all your problems, right? Like especially if you're burnt out. Or we think that a retreat is going to magically help your head to be screwed on properly or help you to stay calm or the retreat vacation. Except that you don't learn to save money only when you're eyeball deep in debt. So if your behavior is already um, wired towards excessive spending, it's going to be difficult to just suddenly build this new brain and habit pathways. So like I always talk about money because people understand money. So when we protract that to things to do with our brain, our relaxation and our minds, the vacations. So if you're not in control of your head, your time and energy is never going to happen when you're on vacation. In fact, many of my clients tell me I feel worse during vacation or I feel sad. The first day of my vacation, I was already thinking, oh my God, I only have 14 days left. Or my head was just a mess. And I felt so bad because I was just not engaged with my family or my partner. They will say things like that. It's so sad. 
So, so most of us have some level of anxiety, right? In, or we call that stress. And anxiety is essentially how you see it, right? Is you're oscillating between escaping from it and obsessing. And most of us take the vacation as an escape. And whatever other reward that can tip into, over into escape, we also tend to classify it as a treat. So that's when it becomes a bit murky. But that's how I tell my clients, if you're going to regret it, like for instance, you could say that this one cocktail is a treat or a reward. But if you're going to regret the fact that you're going to spiral into 20 and then tomorrow your bank account is going to look like terrible, then you're not grounded. And then that's time to do something about it. So in fact, I remember today, I was just talking about this over lunch. I remember how when I was a trainee psychologist, one of my supervisors always told me that months or six months, you got to go on holidays. And then my other colleagues, they would also keep going on holidays. They're like, oh, start a new job. I need a holiday immediately. And that was actually very striking to me. And I realized, actually, I want to build a life I don't need or want to escape from. So I actually want to build this life where I actually enjoy my everyday life. Or when shit happens or when life happens, I have the resilience. And there's a lot in life that I can problem solve. And generally, they're good things because my foundations are stable. So in this life, whenever I go for vacations, every new experience is a treat. And it's essentially all amplifying. Because And so let's end off on this, because I remember Einstein said that the person who, I'm just paraphrasing him, right? But the person who is unable to see all or experience all in life, they are dead. Their eyes are closed. Powerful. We'll close there. Dr. Perpetua Neo, thank you so much for all that you do. Wow, a lot to unpack in this episode. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. Such a great conversation in which I really thought a lot as well.